Welcome to the Semicolon Club podcast. Funny name, serious podcast. In each episode, we focus on topics relevant to those living with colon cancer. It is our goal to inspire and encourage you during your fight and to provide hope throughout your journey. The show is not just for patients, but for survivors, caregivers, family, and friends as you navigate this journey together. Stay tuned. Today on the podcast, we are very excited to have with us Dr. Adam Edwards from UAB. Dr. Edwards, welcome. Thank you, Jackie. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and what you do there at UAB? Sure. I'm an assistant professor of medicine in the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology in the Department of Medicine at UAB. And my background is I completed medical school here at UAB in 2011 and then uh, internal medicine residency in 2014. I served as a chief medicine resident here as well until 2015 and completed my GI fellowship in 2018, at which point I joined the faculty here at UAB. So I've been here all told now since medical school in 2007. My current role in the division, uh, there's a few elements to my current role. Uh, First, I practice outpatient general gastroenterology at the Kirkland Clinic uh, with a mixture of outpatient endoscopy and clinic appointments. I spend half my week at the Birmingham VA Medical Center uh, teaching the fellows in outpatient endoscopy practice and also helping with inpatient hospital consults related to GI issues. I spend a few weeks each year in the hospital on our UAB inpatient consult service as well. I'm also involved in educational activities with the residents at UAB as well as the GI medicine fellows. So I do wear a few hats here locally. I'm also involved nationally in the American College of Gastroenterology, recently completed their Young Physician Scholars Leadership Program And I'm also an active member of the American Society for Gastrointestinal Endoscopy. And I'll be serving my second year on a committee this year planning the endoscopy video sessions at the National Meeting Digestive Disease Week. Wow. I want to know, when do you sleep? (laughs) You sound like a very, very busy young doctor here. It can be busy. There is time for sleep every once in a while, but it's a rewarding uh, schedule. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Um, tell me real quick before we get into to some specifics here about colon cancer, um, what what drew you to this field? Uh, my decision to uh, get into gastroenterology really was based on um, the opportunity that the subspecialty provides to do a mixture of bedside and clinic medicine, but also procedures. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the other subspecialties in medicine really limit your ability to do one or the other. And currently, at least gastroenterology provides the option to do a blend of both, which I enjoy. Can you talk a little bit to our listeners about how colorectal cancer presents and what symptoms someone might experience? Sure. It's important really to emphasize uh, one key point is that early stage colorectal cancer may have no symptoms. In fact, it usually doesn't in early stages, which is why screening in asymptomatic people is so important. However, as colon cancer progresses, individuals can develop symptoms, including rectal bleeding, changes in the caliber of their stools, abdominal pain, and new unexplained anemia. 
So if any of these symptoms are present in an individual, they should never be dismissed and should always be investigated further to ensure they're not symptoms of colon cancer. That's, that's good information. And um, you talked a little bit there about why it was important to screen. Um, why would you tell the person who is, say, 45 to 50 years old and their doctor starts talking to them about screening and, and they say, I have no symptoms, I don't have any family history, I feel fine. Uh, talk just a little bit about why the screening is so important, um, that proactive screening. Sure. Well, I would tell that person, first of all, that colorectal cancer is the second leading cause of cancer-related death in the United States, and it's the fourth most common cancer diagnosed in the United States. Um, even in an average risk person, that means a person with no family history of colon cancer or other high-risk features, such as a personal history of inflammatory bowel disease, an average risk individual like that still has an approximately 4% lifetime risk of developing colorectal cancer. Another way of saying that is currently in the United States, one in 23 uh, men and one in 25 women will experience colon cancer in their lifetime. To add to that, unlike other cancer screening tests, for example, mammograms for breast cancer or low-dose CT scan for lung cancer, you know, these tests detect actually early stage cancer. Some colon cancer screening tests, including colonoscopy, actually allow us to detect and remove precancers, what we call polyps, so that we can actually prevent the development of colon cancer and save lives, not just detect cancer once it's started. Even if, however, cancer is found at the time of screening, when we detect it early, uh, remember, often early on, it's not causing any symptoms, then it's highly treatable. Um, I would also tell that person that since we've had widespread adoption of colon cancer in the United States, we've observed incidence rates decrease since 1985, and we've actually had accelerated declines in people over age 50 since the year 2000. Um, from 2000 to 2010, rates of new colon cancer diagnoses decreased in the United States by 30% in adults age 50 to 80 years old. Um, and we think that this is in large part due to colon cancer screening uptake in this country. But still, more than 30% of patients in the United States who should be screened remain unscreened. And unfortunately, a common reason given in surveys is that those individuals, doctors never mentioned colon cancer screening to them. Mm -hmm. So that'd be my message to the hesitant patient. Um, this is a, a problem that is frequent in our country, and we have the ability to hopefully not just detect it early, but actually prevent it in that person. Yeah, that's, that's great information. And it's good to see uh, data that is backing up the uh, the, the increased screening rate, you know, we wouldn't want to see increased screening, but no decline in cancer. So it, it's always encouraging to hear um, that that data is backing up the increase in the screening rates. Let's talk a little bit about when folks should be screened. Obviously, depending on different factors, um, you know, your neighbor may be screened uh, 10 years earlier or later than yourself. Talk to our audience about the differences in age and, and when that's recommended. 
Sure. So the key point is it's important to begin screening early for colorectal cancer. Again, the idea is that we find hopefully not cancer, but precancerous lesions so that we can stop the development of cancer. But even if we do find cancer, that we can find it early when it's curable. Um, one note here is that we have observed rising incidence rates of colorectal cancer in adults under the age of 50. Um, originally in the past, the group of adults age less than 50 comprised five to 7% of all colorectal cancer diagnoses in our country. But since about the mid nineties, that has risen such that now about 15% of colon cancers diagnosed in the United States are diagnosed in adults under the age of 50. We're not exactly sure why this is occurring, um, but some possible factors that have been implicated include the obesity epidemic and other environmental exposures, including potentially a role of early antibiotic exposure, although that is not certain at this point. The United States Multi-Society Task Force, which is a group of multiple professional societies in the field of gastroenterology, currently recommends in their most recent uh, recommendations published a few years ago that average risk individuals begin screening for colon cancer at age 50 and at age 45 in African-Americans due to higher incidence rates uh, in that demographic and oftentimes earlier mean age at onset. Notably, in 2018, the American Cancer Society put out their recommendation that average risk colorectal cancer screening should begin younger at age 45, and that's due to the rising incidence in younger adults that I was describing earlier. Most recently, in October of this year, October 2020, the United States Protective Services Task Force published a draft recommendation agreeing with the American Cancer Society that screening in the average risk adults could begin at the age of 45 and that it's actually cost effective to begin doing so. That's very important because currently under the Affordable Care Act, anything given a grade A or grade B recommendation in terms of screening by the United States Protective Services Task Force is mandated to be covered by commercial insurance carriers. So assuming that after public comment closed recently on that draft recommendation, that the United States Protective Services Task Force upholds their recommendation to begin screening at age 45, then that would mandate that commercial insurance carriers in the United States begin covering that service for this new age group of 45 to 50. That's great information. How long does that typically take? Um, so for those folks in that 45 to 50 age range, provided that, you know, they sign off in this, like what you're speaking of, when would you expect as far as in terms of, of months for our commercial insurance carriers to, to pick that up and begin covering? Are we looking at six months after a year? What, what would, what's your best recommend or best guess on that? I should say. Sure. I would guess that it would be start coverage for that would begin as early as 2021, um, probably more line, in line with that six month time frame, or perhaps even sooner. Um, I did want to just add a few other things, though, about we've talked a lot about age 50 and age 45, yeah. about why some people may be screened earlier than that age. You know, people listening may know someone, for example, who got a screening colonoscopy at a younger age. And why might that happen? Um, well, one reason would be uh, age to begin screening could be younger in a person if they have a family history of colon cancer. And that really should be discussed with their physician 
in terms of some fine details and the recommendations related to family history. But in broad strokes, if you have a first degree relative, meaning a mother, father, sister, brother, or a child who is diagnosed with colorectal cancer, that actually doubles your risk for developing colorectal cancer in your lifetime. So remember, if average risk individuals have about a four to five percent chance of developing cancer, that goes up to eight to 10 percent for an individual with one first degree relative. Secondly, if a person has two first degree relatives with colorectal cancer, then their lifetime risk actually quadruples. So their lifetime mm -hmm. risk may approach 20 percent for developing colon cancer. Most wow. groups now um, recommend that if you do have a family member with colon cancer, especially a first degree family member with colon cancer, that you start being screened 10 years younger than the age at which that person was diagnosed or at age 40, whichever one occurs sooner. So the example I typically give to the fellows when we're talking about this topic is, if your father was diagnosed with colon cancer at age 45, then you should begin screening at age 35. If, however, your father was diagnosed with colon cancer at age 55, you would start screening at age 40, not age 45, because 40 occurs earlier than 10 years younger than your father's age of diagnosis. The other big reason outside of a family history why younger people uh, may be recommended to undergo colon cancer screening would be in a person who has a history of inflammatory bowel disease involving at least a third of their colon, that can be either Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, because those individuals are, they're technically not at average risk, they're at increased risk for developing colon cancer. And they would often begin having colonoscopies to screen for cancer or precancer changes at a younger age. That's great information. Talk to us, you know, we've talked a lot here about, about when to be screened, um, but Talk to us about the type of screening options that are available to folks who are listening. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, the short answer is there's several options available, um, but broadly speaking, options for colon cancer screening include colonoscopy, stool-based blood and DNA tests, and imaging, often CT-based exams. And the United States Multi-Society Task Force, a group that I mentioned earlier, They've published a ranking uh, where they place screening test options into three tiers based on their clinical effectiveness, their cost effectiveness, and evidence for uptake, that is the likelihood that patients will actually follow through with the test. And in this publication, the top tier or tier one screening tests are colonoscopy every 10 years if it's normal um, or annual fecal immunochemical testing, or what we call FIT testing, F-I-T. That test is a non-invasive stool test that detects hemoglobin or microscopic blood in the stool. Now, to tease these apart a little bit more, colonoscopy is still considered the gold standard screening test and provides the longest interval of protection. Really, colonoscopy is unmatched for cancer and polyp detection and a real key is it's the only screening test that allows us to provide cancer prevention by way of detecting and actually removing precancers or polyps. If a patient decided they didn't want to undergo, you know, an invasive test like colonoscopy and they wanted a non-invasive option such as FIT testing, 
they would need to know that fit testing has to be done once a year uh, and does require a stool sample to be obtained. However, it can be done in the comfort of your home. It's a low cost, approximately $20 per test, um, but does not detect cancer quite as well as colonoscopy. They should also know that if their fit test were to become positive when it's resulted, then a colonoscopy would be needed at that time to figure out why the test is positive. Also, just want to comment on one additional non-invasive stool test option. That is the multi-target stool DNA test. This is marketed commercially as Cologuard, and your listeners may have seen commercials recently on television for this product. Um, it includes a fit test as well as several different tests for some genetic markers of colon cancer that are, can be detected in the stool. It's also non-invasive like fit testing, and it detects cancer approximately 92 out of 100 times, which is a little bit better than fit testing alone. If it's negative, this test can be done at three-year intervals as opposed to the one-year interval after a negative fit test. Again, it still does not really detect cancer as well as colonoscopy and also requires colonoscopy to follow up if the test is positive. It's also more expensive than fit testing. Current cost for a multi-target stool DNA test is about $500 to $600 per test. I tell people all the time in my clinic, though, the most important thing is not to get caught up in the details here. Um, the bottom line is that the best screening test is the one that a patient will actually get done. That is so, that is so true. Um, tell me, and, and we're recording here in December um, of 2020, so, you know, still in the midst of the COVID pandemic, um, with you working there in the UAB and the VA environments, how are you seeing patients respond to screening? I know across the board, across the country, um, all preventative screening tests are down just because folks are leery to go out and, um, you know, certainly folks that may be in a higher risk category um, are not wanting to, to go into the hospital settings right now. Um, what recommendation would you give to patients if they really are, are very concerned about maybe going and having that colonoscopy? Um, would you recommend that they go ahead and talk to the physician about one of these less invasive options? Uh, would you say, you know, postponing that colonoscopy for a few months until hopefully this is under control? Speak, speak to that a little bit, just what your personal recommendations uh, would be to your patients. Sure, those are timely and challenging questions. Um, a couple of different ways to respond to that. You know, one is you have to consider the individual's risk regarding their exposure to COVID. So certainly if a person were older or had more comorbidities, that put them at higher risk um, for having a severe course if they were to contract COVID, then the discussion should be had between that individual and their physician about what might be best for that person in terms of their potential exposure to any kind of healthcare system or other facility for that matter where, you know, they could run the risk of being exposed. Many endoscopy centers across the country, including currently the Kirkland Clinic at UAB, are utilizing pre-procedure testing such that, for example, in our group, we require that a patient has a negative COVID test within 72 hours of their appointment, and it has to be our test in order for them to uh, attend their appointment that day and actually have their procedure done. Like I mentioned earlier, the non-invasive stool study options 
are very good options uh, if the person would like to avoid, you know, coming in for a procedure or the invasive nature of a colonoscopy. I should stress, though, those tests really are only for patients at average risk. So any individual, again, with a family history of colon cancer or with an underlying disease such as inflammatory bowel disease that puts them at higher risk than the average group for colon cancer should not opt for the stool test, but should only opt for colonoscopy. In terms of the question about should we delay those screening colonoscopies, we are very fearful uh, as to what the downstream effect is going to be um, from what has already been delayed since March. So everybody's probably aware that most health systems were issued guidance in March to completely stop, if not severely limit, all elective procedures, including cancer screenings. For example, in the United States, those recommendations came from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, or CMS. <clears throat> and that led to basically nationwide severe delays or complete halts in scheduling colorectal cancer screening, as well as breast cancer screening, cervical cancer screening, and other screening programs. It's been documented in data published from multiple health systems across the country since that time that colon cancer screening rates have declined by as much as 80% in some areas. We anticipate that what this is going to mean is delayed diagnoses of colon cancer, and unfortunately, that probably also means that a proportion of cancers will be diagnosed at more advanced stages than what it would have been otherwise. We don't know exactly what those numbers are, but one uh, way to look at that is a modeling study that was published out of Italy recently, and they estimated that delaying colon cancer screening by 7 to 12 months could mean that as many as a third of colon cancers diagnosed in the next five years will be diagnosed at an advanced stage, and even more longer delays than 12 months could lead to increases in colorectal cancer deaths by as much as 15% over the next five years. So again, uh, individual decisions for individual patients need to be made in light of you know, the context of the specifics of their situation. But to speak broadly, we think that endoscopy units are now safer than ever for patients as well as for healthcare personnel due to pre-procedure testing, as well as heightened use of personal protective equipment or PPE. And we do not advocate that screening continue to be delayed. Wonderful. Um, thank you for sharing that information. You know, what you said there about set the studies with seven to 12 months, um, you know, increased risk, uh, that really hits home because I think all of us really don't think much about delaying that uh, colonoscopy or mammogram or whatever it may be. Oh, six months, eight months, not a big deal. But when you when you hear those statistics, that really drives that point home that we, we need to to continue to follow up. And as I've told many, many uh, folks that I've spoken with who've had these concerns, I'll always ask them, well, are you going to the grocery store and are you going to Walmart? Because if you are, I'm pretty sure the endoscopy unit is safer than the Walmart. That's a good just point. <laughs> <laughs> so um, let's, let's talk a little bit about what can we do to prevent colon cancer? I know that's the million dollar question. People always want to know, well, how do I not end up in that boat? But can you share with us just some practical uh, information about steps we can take to reduce? Sure. And I get this question all the time from patients, especially maybe someone who's come in for a colonoscopy and we found and removed polyps. What can I do to decrease my risk of having polyps or cancer? 
And um, one way to answer that is unfortunately not a lot for the big slice of the risk. Most of the risk for developing polyps and cancer is simply due to age and your genetics, things that we can't change. However, we do think that there are some behavioral and environmental factors that do increase one's risk for developing colon cancer. And things that we can do actively on our part are to limit or avoid red meat and processed meats, um, to increase our daily vegetable and fiber intake, and increase our physical activity. Maintaining a healthy body weight through proper diet and exercise are also helpful. And if you have comorbidities, for example, type 2 diabetes, controlling those, quitting smoking, limiting alcohol use, and most importantly, getting screened for colon cancer and keeping up with the recommended intervals to your next test, depending on which test you chose and what the results were. Very good, very good information. Um, the last thing that I would like for us to talk about is what type of research is being conducted at UAB in the area of colorectal cancer prevention? Yeah, I'm excited to answer this question with uh, you and for your listeners. We're, it's an exciting time at UAB in the area of clinical research for colorectal cancer screening. Currently, we actually have four active trials ongoing in this area, so I'll briefly describe each one of those. First is we're evaluating the performance of a machine learning algorithm, a sort of version of artificial intelligence that examines lab data and demographics to identify individuals who are not up to date with colorectal cancer screening, but have been in our system that we predict to be at high risk of having lower GI disease, including colorectal cancer. And this allows us to aggressively pursue these individuals and offer them expedited screening. We hope that this is one way we can begin to address the disparities in colorectal cancer screening in our state. Now, one caveat here to this particular program is, unfortunately, due to the COVID pandemic, we had to stop running this algorithm for several months because we were not performing screening colonoscopy, and we didn't think it was ethical to be generating a list of patients at high risk that we couldn't offer follow-up for. When we began having discussions about resuming the use of this artificial intelligence technology, we've now run up against some financial constraints, again, as a consequence of the effects of the pandemic. But we're actively having discussions now. In fact, I scheduled a meeting today with some stakeholders here in the health system to see what our options are to re-implement that program, which we hope will be live again in the future. Um, secondly, we have two additional protocols that are industry-sponsored studies in which we are enrolling patients. One is a study called preempt CRC or preempt colorectal cancer. And this is a study looking at the effectiveness of a blood-based uh, multi-omics uh, study that looks at proteins, genes, and other elements that are detectable in the bloodstream in an individual to try to predict their risk for colon cancer, a sort of blood-based assay or screening test for colon cancer. And the way that's being done now is the company investigating this technology is asking patients who are already being scheduled for a screening colonoscopy to just have a single blood draw done within 30 days prior to their colonoscopy and answer a questionnaire so that they can then look at was the blood test predictive of any findings at the subsequent colonoscopy. So that's one. And the other is 
a clinical trial looking at, again, the Cologuard test, the multi-target stool DNA test, a 2.0 version of it, um, to see if we can improve the diagnostic performance of that test, still keep it quite sensitive, but improve the specificity or the decrease the rates of false positives from that test by some improved technology on the DNA assay side. So we're enrolling patients uh, in the near future for that clinical trial as well. And then lastly, another exciting area where artificial intelligence is making inroads into the area of colon colorectal cancer screening is in the area of computer assisted or computer aided detection of polyps at colonoscopy. I didn't talk about this earlier, but colonoscopy is not a perfect test. In fact, um, we know from studies that sometimes endoscopists miss polyps at a rate of five to upwards of 20%, depending on the quality of the exam and the size of the polyps. And so to improve that, uh, researchers have developed deep learning software that's able to analyze a live video as the endoscopist is performing the exam and to put visual uh, alarms or little boxes around polyps on the screen to assist the endoscopist in, in the event they were to not see something as they're withdrawing the colonoscope. So this is called computer-aided detection, and we're enrolling patients now in a clinical trial evaluating the performance of a, a computer-aided detection system here at UAB to see if we can improve our ability to detect polyps during colonoscopy. So again, a lot of potential options here for patients that are interested, um, things that we're hoping to resume and things that we're actively enrolling patients in now and the couple of protocols about the stool-based test that we uh, look to be enrolling patients in soon. Wow, that's that's a lot of great information. I really appreciate you sharing sharing that with us today. Um, sounds like a lot of ex just exciting exciting things on the horizon and um, you know, we're always looking, looking to the things that will help our patients and, and really, you know, we, we want to educate folks and provide as much in the way of resources as possible um, for, for patients and for their families to make sure they're getting screened, make sure they understand the options. Um, and so I, I really appreciate all the information you've shared with us and, and this research information is fascinating. So thank you so much. Um, before we before we end today, is there anything else that you would like to add um, to our listeners? Any one last thought you'd like to I just leave want them to with go today? Back to the idea that um, the best screening test is the one that a patient will actually do. So I just think it's critically important we get the message across about how important it is for ourselves, our families, and our neighbors uh, to be involved in colon cancer screening. Uh, you know, we still only have about 67% of the screening eligible population in the United States up to date with cancer screening. So there are people out there who are not up to date. And if those people don't want to have a colonoscopy, they have options. So again, just want to stress the best colon cancer screening test is the one that gets done. I couldn't agree with you more. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, that that's, that's great. Great information there. Um, and Adam, I thank you so much for joining us today. And we'll have you back on here um, another day when there's Sounds more good, research. Thanks so much for joining us today for the Semi Colon Club podcast. See you next time.